Hello, and welcome to a special Christmas episode of The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week and sometimes on holidays. I'm Pillar Editor and Co-Founder Ed Condon, and I'm very pleased to be joined on this Christmas Eve episode by Bishop Richard Umbers of Sydney, Australia. Bishop, thank you very much for getting up early in the morning to talk to me. And a very good day to you. <laughs> Which would be abbreviated in, in, in normal parlance. I, I Look, I fully respect you sidestepping the cliche. I absolutely <laughs> do. Uh, well, one of the worst, one of the worst things I've ever seen, and this 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 is the the sum total of cringe, was the Los Angeles uh, liturgy conference, you know, which which has its own own fame, but they had an Aussie mass, and instead of you know with your spirit, it was uh, yeah, g'day. <laughs> and I, Did oh, they have a didgeridoo section? And you know, they I, they they may well have actually, although it's difficult to do, but. Yeah, no, it was, I, it, it was really bad. You know, there is no culture that America can't make offensive in its imitation. <laughs> I found really, it's a gift. It's the national charism. Uh, We're very good at it. Um, but it is Christmas Eve over there. And I, okay, full disclosure, one of the reasons I was so keen to get to talk to you, we had discussed, I know we'd messaged back and forth a couple of months ago about doing an episode at the time of, the Ashes, which for people who are listening in the United States and don't know, is the semi-regular every couple of years cricket series between England and Australia, which is something of a blood sport. And when I sort of airily said, oh, we'll have to do a podcast episode on the Ashes, I had assumed England would be down under beating the tar out of Australia. And they're currently 2-0 down in the five-match series. So it's not looking good great for me on that score. Um, but I did want to bring up cricket just because I grew up playing and liking the sport. Um, did you? Well, the thing is, in so I'm, I'm actually a, a sort of a semi-Australian because I'm a Kiwi. So you can call me a quasi, Kiwi Aussie. And, I would, um, arguably, New Zealand have the better team half the time. Oh, we, actually, well, the thing is, we can talk New Zealand, England, because there, there's been a fair bit of rivalry there. Uh, that World Cup, oh my goodness, the, with the, the, the one day yep. on the last ball, that was crazy, crazy. But then there was the, the series, which in fact New Zealand won. So, yes. But a lot of it has to do with uh, the, the grounds. New Zealand and England have similar sorts of conditions for playing cricket on, uh, which favours seam and a bit of swing. And, but Australia, unfortunately, this is the problem for England. They're playing in Australia. So it's not just a question of being difficult to get the horses across uh, for the game. Boom, boom. Because uh, <laughs> most people think it's polo. No, yep. the, uh, the, uh, the, the, so to the American listeners, uh, there are no horses. Uh, but um, <laughs> it's like drop bears in Australia. Now, do you know we actually have a web page dedicated by the government to drop bears? No. Yeah, yeah, look it up. I will definitely do that. <laughs> You'll see that. Sorry, these are these are we delight in taking the Mickey out of people and, and fooling them. So that's yeah, a large part of that. But no, the thing with Australia is that the the hard and uh, fast, hot doesn't suit the English bowlers. No, it doesn't. And, and they're, they're bowling short. And, you know, the, the Aussie batsmen are just yeah going to town. Yeah, it's so. it's not been edifying to watch so far. But and parsing for American listeners very briefly, what what was just said, which is, might as well have been Greek and Hebrew at the same time. Um, because 
when you're bowling the ball in cricket, pitching, if you prefer, uh, you have to bounce it off the ground. So the state of the ground determines a lot. Whether the weather is hot or cold, whether the ground is dry or spongy, makes a big difference to how the game is played. And so whether you're playing home or away in different countries makes a huge bit of difference. Um, but one of the what I find to be the sort of funniest misconception that Americans have uh, when when they think about cricket, which they don't do very often, but when they do, they have the idea that it's a very sort of fussy, stuffy, sort of old school, public school, gentleman's game for toffs. And anyone who watches five minutes of the Ashes or any other great cricketing rivalry, really, India, Pakistan, South Africa versus anyone, really, um, you, you quickly come to understand that this is not a game of, you know, sort of prissy people playing by silly rules that this is a this is definitely a game where emotions run high and you know people get hurt quite a bit uh, well, especially if you're playing silly mid on yeah yeah well and there's yeah this is the other thing there's you know you're, you're right you know you're fielding very close people catch balls barehanded they don't have gloves things like that it's it's a completely different kind of sport um and it is fascinating to watch but for me what i like most about it is at least test cricket which is what the Ashes is, um, is they're playing over five days or at least the possibility for five days. And the level of patience you need, not just to follow the game, but to follow the sort of mounting tension of that. People think it's boring, but at least for me, I find that the real challenge of watching a closely contested five-day test match is it's hard to maintain that level of excitement almost. I mean, the second test almost finished in a draw. I say almost, Australia won fairly handily, but there was a minute there where it looked yeah, like England yeah, were yeah. going to force a draw. And that would have been a huge upset. And you can- It's, you hard, have- to ex- it's hard to describe because you, 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 I think it's one of those things that you just grow up with as a child. There are so many terms, the, the strategies, the fielding placements, the whole thing. It's, there's, there's ritual. Um, there's a funny scene uh, where I think Shane Warne is commentating. And I don't remember who the English commentator is, but he um, he says of the batsman, well, he's you know he's on you know in his nineties and he's never got out in the nineties. And then Shane Warne absolutely loses it. You know, you've jinxed him. You've absolutely yep. jinxed him. And of course, the next ball, he's bowled. You know, yep. you... <laughs> no, <laughs> there's it, a lot it, of superstition. It, there's a lot of superstition, and I mean, the thing that I've always found funny is that you know a lot of Americans, certainly a lot of Americans I know, love baseball and think very well of the game and and tend to get a bit nerdy about it in the same way. And it has a lot of similar similarities with cricket in that people become a bit stat obsessed, a bit tradition obsessed. There's a sort of insider's language. I mean, the, in America, people, whenever someone's described something as being obscure and sort of impenetrable conversation, they describe it as inside baseball. Um, and it's true about cricket too, but of course the first international cricket match ever played was the USA versus Canada. So international cricket is actually an American thing. They just don't claim it. I d- wow. Yeah, go figure. Um, but the reason that they're playing cricket in Australia right now, of course, is because it's your summer. And I've always been curious. And it's one of those things where I imagine every Australian has a hundred stories of people asking them the same thing. But at least for me, I think it's also one of the things like, well, everyone must ask them, so I won't. But I'm just going to. Is it as a lot of people who live in the Northern Hemisphere imagine it, where Australia is, you know, it, it's essentially a European country um, in, in terms of its cultural norms and everything. Uh, but 
how do you square that when you're sort of living the seasons upside down versus where a lot of the imagery and pageantry around, say, Christmas comes from? I mean, is it the sort of stereotype of Hawaiian shirts with Father Christmas on them, or is it something completely different? And no, no, you wear a Santa suit, but with with flip flops. Nice. <laughs> I like it. Are, are you able to do? I mean, what it, what does Christmas look like this year for you? I mean, it's Christmas Eve. I assume you've got midnight mass tonight. I have indeed. Yep. And so that. The thing is, there's there's vigil mass, mm-hmm. uh, and some parishes may even have several of those. And now that's the one, and this is going to sound like the Grinch who stole Christmas, but that's the one the priests fight over not doing. Really? Yeah. Oh. Because it, because that's where you have you it, like it's compulsory to have the reenactment of the gospel, you know, with all the little kids and you know, all the parents go, oh, "Isn't this cute?" And, Does it doesn't melt the hearts. Not of the priests. No, they just want to like <laughs> this is this is just like you know, count me out for that for that part, and then I'll come back in and say mass. But that, that's was, that's yeah, priests are pretty bad like that. Well, uh, not just the priests. JD and I were talking about this on the show last week, and we were we were ranking our preferred Christmas masses, and um, definitely the vigil mass with the sort of ne- you know necessity kids pageant in the middle of it was bottom of the pile. But so you didn't get that one. No, well, I, 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 I actually uh, go all clerical, pull rank, and nice. the, uh, the the parish priest gets that one. I do midnight mass, and then he does the eight o'clock, and I do the ten o'clock in the morning. And which is the which is the more family friendly one for your parish? Is it the eight or the ten? That's a good question. It, it really depends upon how how early the kids have woken up. The parents. I think it's also, I On mean, this day, is me remembering yeah. I've got one child who's two months old, so we don't, we don't have rules about this yet, but I, I there's, it, it struck me growing up going to mass on Christmas morning, that there were two kinds of families. There were families who did the presents before going to mass and there were families who did presents after going to mass. And that really determined which one you were going to. And there was, I'd say the, the excitement level at the eight o'clock was probably a little higher you know, maybe I, I assume they were just anticipating the Eucharist. That's all it was. But it well, well, the, the, like the previous, a- the previous priest to when I moved into this parish, uh, he used to keep a menagerie of, of various, you know, rabbits and guinea pigs and all the rest of it. It was just his thing. And so, my first time saying mass on, on a big feast day like Christmas or it was Easter, um, I was with a lot of families, and I noticed some of the mums coming up, the little little girls that had small plastic bags with carrots in them because they were going to go and feed the animals after mass. Oh. The only thing was that, all, that priest and his menagerie had moved on. So I, I felt a bit guilty. These poor little kids, all the illusion of it. Yeah, no. Oh, dear. Well, I mean, you could get reindeer next year, I suppose. Uh, well, no, you've got yeah, a warm climate. It, Have you considered a camel? You, I know a parish who right, does this. Saying, new Santa has Santa with camels. Is a that that it could actually be an innovation? Well, it would be an innovation, but I, there's a parish near me that they get camels in every year for the Epiphany, and then you get. Well, you that's, get... we haven't we haven't tried that. We haven't tried that. I, I, places do get. See, that's the thing. We still follow old school European traditions of like uh, donkeys. Ah, uh, so parishes will bring donkeys in on on Palm Sunday. Go to all of that, but you know, blessings of animals, but camels. Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe if you were out in Broome or uh, in the Kimberleys, that 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 could work. It's uh, not going to work in Sydney. Well, the thing with kangaroos, <laughs> they're a little difficult to try and keep all in the same direction. But yeah, oh, that's fair enough. And I mean, we're talking about the idea of you know a kid's 
pageant and everything in in the vigil mass and you know everything that goes on sort of Christmas morning. I I don't I sincerely don't know because really all I know about the current state of play in Australia with regards to sort of pandemic restrictions and everything else that's going on is is what you see in some global media coverage and more often than not very myopic one-sided presentations on social media and things like that. So I mean, what is the state of play in the archdiocese right now? Is I mean, the churches are presumably open. We're, we're open. We're open. We're in business. So, look, it, it, the new premier, um, Dominic Perrottet, has taken a much more gung-ho kind of stance on this, although he has now moved away from the line of personal responsibility to saying, well, you, you're going to have to check in with your QR codes and you will need to wear a mask. So mm. we've, we've gone back to that, but we're not going to lock down. Okay. So I think so. It's up to people to decide, make their own determinations. And most of the churches will be open. A few of them have closed uh, and are going online just out of precaution. Uh, we have a surge of Omicron, which in the uh, the hashtag, because the, the, the name of the premier is Dom Perite, so it's being called Domicron. Uh, you know, nice. quite funny for, for Sydney. But um, other states, so the, Australia's made up of, of, of a number of states, uh, and a couple of territories. And so West Australia, for instance, has gone into you know, complete separation, but they're always uh, threatening to, to leave Australia anyhow. Um, and you have... Uh, uh, they're kind of your California. More, well, are they California? They've got plenty of sharks. I suppose that the great white shark would be what they'd share in common. But- well, on the West Coast, always threatening to leave, possibly have um, their own ideas about how things should be run. It's a bit awful that the rivalry tends to be Sydney and Melbourne, which is the, you know, New South Wales and Victoria. Uh, Brizzy's up north. So, which, of course, the further north you go, the hotter it gets. Uh, that's one of the things of being upside down. But, yeah, that's where you have the uh, the corks on the hat and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Crocodile Dundee. Um, no, but the state of Victoria has also, we've got uh, Dan Andrews, and he goes under various epithets. Uh, but, but so Victoria has a, a particularly draconian way of, of, of dealing with, with uh, health issues. Uh, West Australia and Queensland just tend to just shut their borders you know, at a moment's notice. And um, although Queensland now, they've, they've kind of signalling they're going to stay open. But New South Wales is very much uh, open for business, I think would be uh, stress business uh, is the way that, <laughs> that, that sort of New South Wales tends to see things. Right. And we have a lot of coasts and a lot of beautiful beaches. And, uh, just every, well, see, one of the problems when we had lock, we had an extended lockdown uh, a few months ago, and it was supposed to be two weeks, went for four months. That was fairly serious. And there were a certain, you could see them on social media as well, there were certain um, uh, social class divisions. So if you were in the Western suburbs, in the poorer districts, the army was out enforcing curfew. And if you're in the eastern suburbs in Double Bay, uh, which is known as Double Pay, and um, you know the, the lifestyles of the rich and famous, the, the people were just merrily walking hand in hand along the beach. Um, right. So that that I don't know how that's going to reflect at the ballot box. I, I probably not. Well, I'm just guessing, but we'll see. I guess. I mean, what? How, how, that how long you? people's memories are? Yeah, social media is forever. You see, so videos of the yeah. army marching through the suburbs tends to tends to come back up. But I mean, for you, I, I know for, I mean, we had this problem in the States as well, you know, during sort of longer periods of lockdown, particularly where, you know, we had several months where, you know, this weren't public masses, you couldn't go to church, everything was, was closed. Um, 
a lot of parishes shifted to the sort of online thing and you know live stream mass and things like that. But for a bishop, how do you be a bishop when you can't get out and about? Because particularly, I imagine for an easily bishop. Oh, really? Easily. Oh no, that was the easiest. You can't thing in the cheat world. and say that the primary ministry of an auxiliary bishop is meetings, and you can just move the. Oh Zoom come on! You knew, no. it. <laughs> you knew it. I knew that. I knew this was coming. <laughs> Come on, it takes up most of my timetable. Does it really? <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so Archbishop Anthony Fisher loves telling the story that when he was Auxiliary Bishop of Sydney, he'd go to Cardinal Pell and he'd say, Eminence, you've put me down on 22 committees. And the Cardinal's reply was, oh, you've got time enough to count them up. You've got time enough to be on another one. <laughs> So how many committees are you on? I Well, I always tell the Archbishop, I don't know. I haven't had time to count them. Oh, fair <laughs> enough. That's, that's probably wise. But no, I mean, but honestly, yeah, the board meetings, papers, activity, you can do it all on Zoom. I mean, it's what they need is your attendance. That's why I send Bishop Bot. <laughs> you have a cardboard cutout that you just sort of face the camera? Virtual, virtual one. Well, I may as well do it. If I can work on the artificial intelligence. I mean, we're getting there. You know, you can you can do people singing. You should be able to do people nodding their head at a meeting. Yeah, um, you'd think. But all you have to do is, is say things like, I, mean, I, I sh showed you that meme I made of Bishop Bot. Have you, you yeah, seen I think you did. And premium version. <laughs> <laughs> you can spot a grammatical mistakes in a 200-page document. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of, sadly, that, that is a large part of what one does. Yeah. Oh, I, 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 I thought you were going to tell me how you had a novel way of substituting for being able to tour around parishes and do confirmations and things. No, it really uh, is as grim uh, as it sounds then. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, don't you so we are compliance plus plus in Australia. We're one of the most bureaucratic nations around. This always surprises me about Australia because yeah, I mean, we're I know supposed to be true. the rebels and the, yeah. you know, we were the ones in jail and all that kind of stuff. No, no, we are, we are very, very bureaucratic. Um, I mean, we do enjoy a very high standard of life in Australia, I must say. But uh, it, it comes at, you know, everyone's quite conformist and uh, we play by the rules, very much so. It goes to show you that the common perception is, I, I, I suppose it is sort of 40 years out of date now, the sort of crocodile dundee, everyone's wandering around with a knife in their teeth. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has been my experience of Australia. I know a few people who, who were Australians to work with them in politics and things, and they went home and they've, you know, we've carried on there and it does seem like you've, you've taken the administrative state to some pretty um, advanced levels. Well, so I, I um, it was a shock to me. I, I knew that when I was becoming a bishop, I didn't really know what that entailed when I said, leave myself in God's hands. I mean, that same happens when you get married, you could be taught all sorts of things about what it is to be married, but you know that when you actually do get married, I'll say, oh, wow. Okay. I didn't quite count on this and this and this and this, you know, so it's, it's a learning experience. Well, it was certainly that for me, but the shock for me was suddenly being thrust into the world of bureaucratic meetings and acronyms and then wondering what's the point of all of this. I mean, it's, it's a bit like sort of an anthropologist's uh, dream. We've come, stumbled across a tribe that's been separated from the rest of society for such a very long time with its little traditions and <laughs> ways of doing things. And <laughs> it's not quite clear what any of it's for, but anyway, that's, that's how it operates. So one of the things JD and I joke about all the time is um, priests who you don't come across very often, you come across them less and less, uh, at least in the States. 
um, priests who who've discerned a vocation to what we we call the transitional presbyterate. Um, the those who feel that maybe the Lord is also calling them to higher things. I, I'm just. Oh assuming, yes. Oh right. Yes. 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 Yeah. I, I I'm just assuming that you you weren't expecting to become a bishop then. Well, I was. Did you think you were? How did you? I mean, is yeah. okay. So for for you, accepting that everyone is different, but for you, is there such a thing as um a vocation to the episcopate? Was it was it something that you discerned, or was it just you got a call from the nuncio and it was like, I guess I'm doing this now. Well, so it's seven years training to become a priest in the seminary, and I, you know, and, and we're still working on on how to make that a bit more pastoral, a bit more practical. There's certainly a lot of need to be done in terms of. Uh, running a parish, you know, because of the compliance demands that come with that. So that's fine. But it's seven years of theology and, and pastoral training, etc. To become a bishop, you get one phone call from the nuncio. And did you, did you get, I mean, over here, I know that a lot of guys' mobile phones get the caller ID, and it actually says that it's coming from the apostolic nuncio in Washington, D.C., and a lot of them just put the phone down and assume they're being pranked. Did you... Uh, no, you, there was. Were you, was there any skepticism when you got the call? Uh, no, because I got a call from the uh, from the secretary of the nuncio, uh. saying, "Is this Richard Ambers? <laughs> uh, is this this is the secretary?" Said, "Yes." And if they, expect the nuncio will be calling you uh, in a few minutes. I went right. I was driving my car actually down down Oxford Street towards the cathedral. I was going. It was on a Monday. I was going to hear confessions for a couple of hours. So I parked the car, I get the call from the nuncio, and I was, because obviously when, when the secretary says, is this you, you know, and nuncio wants to call you, you start to, mind goes into overdrive. And, and of course he said, hello, uh, Richard, yes, this is the apostolic nuncio, Holy Father has appointed you as the auxiliary bishop of Sydney, do you accept? Oh, so he really didn't give you, you know, would you like to think about it, call me back tomorrow? No, just, oh, no, no, it's just straight on, on the spot. And then I went, well, uh, 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 can I, can I ask my spiritual director? And he said, well, you're not allowed to tell anyone, you can mentioned to the speech, but no one else must know. And I need the response today because the Holy Father's waiting for your reply. I went, ah, <laughs> but I went off and heard confessions for three hours. Um, so I got- Nothing like perspective. <laughs> anyway, I was able to reply back, but that was what my thinking was when I was able to spend some time alone with the Lord was, well, look, I've got no idea what I'm getting myself into, but that's, that's fine. And I mean, presumably that at least abbreviated period of sermon wasn't wasn't new territory for you because am i right in saying that you you discerned a vocation to a kind of religious life or at least an apostolic celibacy before you discerned one to the priesthood correct correct i, I was 19 yeah I'll, i don't think i've ever heard of anyone doing it that way around i mean i most priests that i know would say they discerned a vocation to the sacramental priesthood and then celibacy was just the thing that sort of enabled them to live that ministry more fully. I, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who who said, no, I discerned celibacy first, and then priesthood was sort of an outgrowth of that. How did that happen? Well, so I, I uh, was attending the center of Opus Day, And, and uh, for some reason... So I, I um, on that particular a particular day, I, I was in, in the practice of, of, of mental prayer. I'd been taught how to do mental prayer. And I used to try and do 10 minutes a day. But generally, that would be, at a, you know, after coming back from a party or something like that, so about 1, 1.30 a.m., I'd say, oh, gee, I better do my 10 minutes of prayer for the day. Let's try and struggle to stay awake and then, you know, go to bed and start off the typical university life. Uh, but on that particular day, I was very open to the Lord, and I said, I was thinking, well, look, I need to do something coherent and 
in keeping with 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 my beliefs and uh, maybe maybe what God wants of me is to spend an hour a week doing some Red Cross or or, or some kind of volunteer work. You know what what might this be? And so I I asked God in my prayer, "What do you want of me?" But the thing was, I had my heart open on that time, and uh, yeah, my prayer got away in me, and it became, "You should be living apostolic celibacy." And I went, You've got to be kidding me. Is it? Uh, so that was, it took me a few months. It is a, to get it's my head not just that a one. unique way to receive your vocation. It's definitely a unique vocation for a university student to receive. Yeah. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> and I, was like, I, couldn't, I couldn't shake it. That's what God wanted. And I said, oh, I'm going to fall in line. And I mean, was that, if you like, a sort of missionary moment for you as an undergraduate to have to, you know, I, 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 I remember dimly my own university days and I, I think if I, I mean, I wasn't living in wild abandon at that point, but I think if anyone had sort of intentionally said, oh yeah, I'm, I'm electing apostolic celibacy, I really think this is what God is calling me to, it would have brought the pub to a standstill. I mean, was that if you like, was well, that a well, point of entry for evangelization for you was to say, yeah, this is what I've heard? Uh, it's not, not, it wouldn't be, I didn't have it on my business card and sort of lead off and say, you know, this is what I'm doing. I mean, that was, I just, yeah, kind of kept it to myself, but that was the way forward after that. So I, I joined Opus Day as a numerary member and, right. and it sort of went from there. Yeah. And so you've, I, I think I'm right in saying in, in your priestly ministry, when I know that you studied in Rome and then in Navarre, um, where you, where you studied not canon law, which is disappointing. Um, but there was a I, flaw actually. And when I did my undergraduate in uh, Santa Croce in Rome, and I remember once one of the priests, I was with someone else and he said, are you going to do canon law for your second cycle? And I was just, I was, oh no, that's way too practical. No, I'm doing philosophy. <laughs> exactly. If only, well, I, I wasn't counting on, on the, the, the importance of accounting and canon law, which are probably the two most important things that you need to know. Yeah. I, I mean, talk about being, if you, if you really want to be a spoiler in any kind of diocesan meeting, if you're the guy with a canon law degree, you can bring the whole thing to a standstill almost at will. Oh yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Accounting and canon law. Those are the that. That's where that. The reason you'd go to a finance meeting is not because you care about money. It's because you want to know what's actually going on. Right. Because that it's it's much harder to lie in that context <laughs> because it's the true. money's either being spent or it's not. And when yep. you see the money's being spent, you can see. So that's what they're up to. Ah. It's true. It's very true. I'm. You know, All the rest yeah. is spin. It's just like, yeah. oh, we're the wonderful rainbows and unicorns and candy mountain. And, you know, <laughs> I'm just saying every, everyone who studies candle, I don't know anyone has ever regretted it. It's, it's a lot of fun, but uh, anyway, so having studied in Rome and in Spain, I know you ended up going back to Australia and you, you spent quite a lot of time back in education. As a lecturer, so I've always been always a chaplain, always a chaplain. Always so a chaplain. chaplain at university residence, chaplain at a high school, back again, chaplain at a university residence, and in the meantime, um, also teaching part time at the university in philosophy and theology. How are you done. finding that? This is something that interests me because I, I was having um, I was having drinks with a friend of mine who's a university chaplain himself right now, and he was saying that you know he loves it. He's you know. He's got a great group of students. He's got, you know, his Newman Center is doing very, very well, all this stuff. But he said, the, the real problem is the generational shift that has happened in the last 10 years is so stark when you're talking about basic principles that it used to be, you, you know, evangelization was a question of getting, trying to talk to people about the idea of God. But he said, 
it's not that we don't have common ground with sort of, you know, the general student body who, you know, might lean agnostic or atheist or whatever else about God, that we're lacking the common ground about humanity now, that to talk about what the human person is, has become so difficult because, you know, things like transgender rights and issues you know, just didn't exist as a, as a social issue 10 years ago. Do you find that? Do you find that there's this really radically changed space and language that you're having to operate within when you're, when you're talking to university students? Well, I don't think it's just with university students. I think that's the whole of our society, frankly. I mean, you know, the whole thing of gender dysphoria is a, a, a number one issue. Now, you, why is that a number one issue? I mean, it's a, <laughs> in one sense, you'd think this is a, a rel- relatively rare problem that people will encounter, and yet it, it, it dominates our discourse. And so it has a lot more to do with where we're heading in terms of, yeah, Christian anthropology. We've, we've lost what it is to postmodernism. I guess you, know, you talk about death of the author. And it takes a little while for those sorts of ideas to come into popular culture. Uh, but what, is it, what does it mean to be human? I mean, we, we, we do occupy a very transhumanist space. Uh, and it's, up, it's very much up for grabs and, and uh, very centered on, well, it's Whatever I decide, uh, I, I suppose, uh, in, in terms of with my autonomy, and did you see that with the anti-vax arguments, uh, where everything's flipped on its head and it's my body, my choice, and you go, what, <laughs> what, whoa, 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 what's this? Um, so that's that's in 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 the ether, and of course at the university, it's it's just accentuated. In the past, I mean, maybe in the past, you know, so maybe when we were kids. You, you could have thought, look, the way to, to carry out a youth group is, you know, put on a bit of pizza, play a bit of soccer and say, Jesus loves you. And, you know, and, and away we go. And, and maybe that was the model. And then, it caught, of course, there were the, the rise of the nuns, um, Richard Dawkins and friends. And, you know, atheism was more accentuated. So let's just prove the existence of God. Sure. But now, yeah, I mean, what is it to be human? What does and, and that's where, in fact, uh, I find that the um, some of some particular groups in the church are particularly good at, at helping people, and I, I find that with the Maronites, they're very present in Sydney, um, and they are at the backbone of a lot of what the church is doing in the Latin Rite. Um, you'll find there's always they have they're very social, they have got a great youth group, and uh, they're just generally really really fun people to hang around. So that, that, that's kind of like a center of, of uh, evangelization. It's quite funny. There's a, a young fellow who comes to mass at my church. He's serving. He's doing nursing at Notre Dame. He's second-year nursing. And one of his mates uh, is a, a more English background Australian who, uh, who was received into the church, was baptized, and now goes to the Maronite mass. And he's tall, thin, skinny, Caucasian guy. Uh, because his Lebanese barber just keeps talking about God, and that's how he kind of got it. Anyway, now there he goes with his with uh, with Freddie, his uh, the, the nursing student. They're, they're good mates. So let's see what what happens. But that, it's just they they just very naturally uh, bring people to Jesus. That's encouraging to hear, and I think that sort of person to person contact is really the only kind of evangelization that we can we can hope for right now. And I mean that in the best possible way, which is that, you know, as we're dealing with a sort of institutional disaffiliation, which seems to be the, the wider cultural space that we're, we're living in, in the quote unquote West um, is that personal relationships are what matter that. I mean, I think you're right that one of the reasons why things like um, transgender issues have 
become, you know, in a way dominant in social discourse, despite, you know, as you said, statistically, we'd be talking about, you'd think an issue that wouldn't command a lot of attention is because it, it goes to the heart of what it is to be human. You know, what is your anthropology? What is humanity? What is a person? Um, But it's also entirely linked to the human experience of, I know someone who knows someone who had this experience or is living through this or is having this difficulty. And, you know, engaging with a society that has become, you know, very individualistic, not in the sense of being selfish, but individualistic is defining reality through the experience of the individual. It requires that kind of person. What, what does Charles, how does Charles Taylor describe it? Hyper something or other. Yeah. Hyper individualism. Is that they think yeah. um, and, and so evangelization ends up being reduced back to, I, I guess what you'd call the apostolic model, which is you've got to go out and talk to someone and it's one-to-one. That's how it works. You know, that's how it all started. And I, I mean, part of me finds that encouraging and terrifying um, in terms of what it means for, you know, the average layman and what we're expected to do to participate in the evangelization. But, you know, I, I do feel like there's um, the, the ground is more fertile than people give it credit for, because if you're dealing with, as we used to, and you mentioned it, the sort of fashionable atheism or fatuous atheism of Richard Dawkins, that's one thing, whereas it's, it's, it's a bit of a conceit. You know, it's not, it, it's a little winking. It's a little, you know, knowing it, it's not entirely serious. And it's more anti something than for anything. But when you're talking to people on university campuses now, I think it's, it's, a, it's not always a very reasoned engagement that you can have with them, but it's definitely a very deeply felt one about really central core human experience and issues. And it seems to me that the sort of the lurking question that the gospel is always the answer to has become a lot louder and a lot more prominent in recent years, along with this sort of stuff. Well, that's where I think if you have a a functioning community of some sort uh, of people who are worshiping, and that's why, for instance, you know, with say the Latin mass, um, that it's one of the areas where you get a lot of growth with university students and young families, because there's something uh, core to the identity. Uh, it, it's uh, people can gather around that, and, and I don't, I don't know that it's necessarily around the theology of it. Uh, it, it but as a community, as a community builder, it, it, it's uh, certainly proving proving its worth. And, and I see that in Sydney, um, the personal parish that we have just down the road from us. I mean, my goodness, it's just during lockdown, it, it increased. Uh, because the priests there are so generous in making themselves available for the sacraments and spiritual direction. So the FSSP priests, uh, I mean, just amazing men. (laughs) I've got to say, you know, the ones here in Sydney, uh, just completely dedicated. And and that shows itself in in the response that you get. Now, there are other other priests around as well, and, and... Lo and behold, the ones who are kind of pastoral, nice, smile, take an interest, uh, people respond to that. And, and you see those parishes actually growing. Uh, the ones where the priest is trying to work through some issues and the diocese have kind of left them to their devices and they're a bit depressed. Uh, guess what? Yeah, it doesn't <laughs> sort of comes through in the mass and in the preaching. Um, and and, and so visit from a, a good auxiliary bishop, maybe. It, well, that's that's part of the, uh, the the work of an auxiliary bishop is, in fact, I get priests around um, on a regular basis for 
in small groups, five or six, just have lunch, have dinner. They're always surprised to learn that there was no agenda. It was, in fact, just to have lunch and dinner. Uh, and they, and they believe that? <laughs> if I'm invited to a lunch or dinner, or I'm told by a hierarchical and there's no agenda, I'm like, oh, great. Oh, sure. <laughs> oh, there's always background info. But, <laughs> no, but that's the thing, though. It, is, it really is just about building up the presbyterate. And, uh, and I think, you know, different ways in which you can do that. We had a barbecue on Monday night, uh, organized by one of those for the priests under 10 years uh, ordained. And it was about to, probably about around th- over 30 turned up. And um, that was, uh, it was very successful. It was just one of the younger priests who's a Maronite. Uh, he's, la- he's bi-ritual, if you will. But he had the barbecue out. Uh, there was some good wine, um, some nice beers. There's, there's this thing which, anyway, look, do you know Shisha? Yes. Yeah, there was shisha. Nice. Uh, that's very much the matter. I spent. I, I, there was a when I was when I was a pretentious university student. There was a Lebanese cafe not not far from my university where you could sit out front and drink Turkish coffee and smoke shisha all day long. And I mean, if you had to do, if you needed to read for an hour or whatever for one of your courses, it was the most simultaneously the most pleasant and also the most pretentious thing you could do with your time. And so I did it for both those reasons. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. So I knew it well. <laughs> Although I think, I don't know, in terms of smoking, it must be worse than I don't know how many packets of cigarettes or something. It's just- I don't know, because you, you smoke the tobacco through the water. And I'd like to think that ha- that takes some of the tar out of it. I mean, I haven't looked into it because I don't want to, you know, destroy my own ridiculous assumptions. I just like to think that everything I do is probably the healthier option in some way. And I can argue my way into it. I was, I was big into explaining to anyone who had listened at the beginning of the pandemic that there was preliminary research that indicated that smokers weren't really getting COVID. And so I thought, you know, well, this is, I'm looking after my health. You know, this is, this is me taking, you know, taking responsibility. It didn't go down too well. No, I could, I could, that was my, actually my, my dad used to smoke. And uh, when he when it first came out that uh, cigarettes could cause cancer, I think he switched to cigars. <laughs> <laughs> he was following the evidence, you know, following there's, the exactly. Science. There's right. I mean, the, the, when the facts change, my opinions change. That's what else would you have me do? Um, but you you talk about building up priestly fraternity. How much? And this is something I ask a, a lot of priests, but I'd be interested for you not only coming from a reality as heavily fraternal as the Opus Dei, but also now being an auxiliary bishop. How do you see the reality for priests now in parish ministry where really common life has become the exception rather than the rule? How well, I think hard bishops, is it? bishops need to take that into account. And, and, and I, this is probably an area where you will see um, a popular revolt maybe by priests at some stage. Because, Perish the thought. Well, man You're on the other made- side now. Your Excellency, was, you can't talk about popular revolt. You're the man. They'll be revolting against you. You need to step on this sort of thing before they get out of line. Crush it. Crush it. <laughs> Divide and conquer. It's like the Wizard of Ed. Uh, you know, the people are revolting, sire. You know, you know that one. Yes. But, <laughs> but um, no, but it is, it is one of those things that unfortunately, uh, diocesan life, and I suppose coming from a prelature into a diocese is something of a shock, but diocesan life tends to be fairly fairly cold and brutal, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's throw them into the sea and see which ones swim back. Uh, and there are so many demands on anyone who's got any position of responsibility, you know, that they, they are swamped. And I, and I think that the, the, the failures 
which uh, can be systemic at times, it's because people are just overloaded. It's not that they're swatting around. They're, they're, everyone's busy. And, and there's just never any end to it. Uh, but that's, then it's a question of priorities. And I think maybe mixed up with the fact that there are a lot of priests who are quite introverted. Uh, there ain't that many extroverts around. So maybe that plays into it. I, I, I've not quite understood the phenomenon, but you, you can end up easily with a lot of priests who feel misunderstood um, and who feel abandoned you know, by the diocese, by, by at times um, there will always be some sensitive parishioners, which is great. But, you know, like a high school principal will find it very stressful because parents have changed in their attitudes. It's not the kid who has a problem. It's the, it's the principal. Well, the same way, you know, with a kind of a consumerist, you know, I want my mass at my time and that's my pew. Uh, well, you know, the priest is great if he does what I want. Uh, but if it's not my music choice or not my floral arrangement, well, then, you know, priest is going to get it. So there, there is that that side of things. And, and if you feel let down by the chancery, uh, it's not hard to feel let down. Um, then you end up with a, a lot of disillusioned and, and quite lonely uh, people. Now, if you can have com true community, three or four priests living together who've got reasonably similar outlook, uh, that's a whole new ball game. But to do that, you have to be very intentional and you have to make priest placements on that basis. Now, now, I'm saying that as an auxiliary, which means that I'm not the one who has to make these decisions. So Surely I on easily... one of the 24 plus committees you're <laughs> sitting on is priestly assignments. Well, Council of Deans, you see, that would be one of the, one of the places where you could talk about that. But, uh, you know, you're not, I'm not the one who has to bear the, you know, the, the, the actual decision making. I mean, a lot of that comes down in the end to the ordinary and the vicar general. Uh, but... You do need to, so I, so I can talk in theory, but like anything, when you're making the concrete choices, you say, you're well, this priest and that priest, you know, what's, you go, oh, gee, okay. But I think with the younger ones, you do have a chance to, to build up in that way and have two or three together and, and keep going that way. And I think, and you say, well, how are you going to meet the demands of that particular parish? How are you going to do this and that? Well, again, it's priorities. And I think if you're able to explain to people, you just have to take the criticisms that will come because it's more important that that those priests actually persevere and and be fruitful as priests. That makes sense. That? I mean, yeah, well, for sure. I mean, and part of that, of course, is the parish communities in which they're they're living. And you you mentioned the sort of parishioners that can have a consumerist mentality of I want my mass at my time sitting in my pew with my choice of music. Um, but it it often seems to me that a lot of our sort of parochial model in the Latin church presumes an almost consumerist mentality by ordinary Catholics, that their job is they will pitch up and they'll be given what they need and then they'll go away again. And that part of the challenge facing the church in the, in the sort of third millennium or whatever you want to call it, the challenge of the new evangelization is to sort of turn the parishioners the other direction and say, no, you're, you're your primary orientation needs to be going out from the parish, not being drawn into it once a week. And it's what's going on in the other six days, which is going to inform the life of the parish on, on the Sunday. How do you, and maybe the answer to this is you hold a plenary council, which is what you guys are doing in Australia right now, but how do you begin to sort of turn your parishes inside out that way and have them be these sort of outward facing institutions of evangelization that not just Pope Francis, but lots of popes since the council, but especially JP2, have been calling for. So that's that's actually the pastoral strategy of the Archdiocese of Sydney, is what, what you, you've just stated it. Oh, there you go. 
Uh, so it's <laughs> lucky me. <laughs> so we have we have I mean and, and the answer is of course is a variety, always a variety of ways. But but we're investing uh, with time and money in parishioners getting formation uh, to be evangelizers. So if you're, from the parish, in the parish. So of course you have lots of different um, new you know movements and uh, assorted phenomena who who do their thing, you know, and, and religious charisms. But it's you know, but from the parish itself, and, and to go to, I hate saying this because we had the 1974 jubilee. Anyway, and, and it, there, there was some wonderful rhetoric uh, used at that time, which would be wonderful uh, also in a plenary council setting. You know, so to, to move from documentation to lived realities, things like that. You know, so, so you could use all of that, but but in this case, bringing putting, the words off the page and into life. Hey, you got a job. Okay. <laughs> I'll get you to. But in this case, it's a, instead of something fluffy, uh, we are actually sending uh, people to these uh, formation centres. So the Missionaries of God's Love have, have a place called the Arete Centre in, in the south of Sydney. Uh, and that we've got about 20 people signed up uh, from the parishes to that. And that's just a, the beginning uh, with a number, of, a number of ways in which working with the priest, uh, because you always need the priest, but working with the priest uh, to to find ways to to genuinely be invitational or you know and, and to live hospitality, and we're trying to get that working. I think also with the schools, uh, but but the the key to that is personal relationships. Uh, it, it's incredibly incredibly easy to just go passive and the whole system collapses. Uh, that was a, a seminarian I was with uh, was from Brazil. He used to be a soldier, and I, I asked him one day. I said, "Well, what what would you do?" You know, what was the plan in Brazil if the United States invaded? He said, very easy, we've got a, we've got a contingency for that. I said, what's that? He said, we just do nothing. <laughs> oh. I mean, they, can't, they can't function because no one will do anything. Just sort of sit on your, sit on your backside. And yeah. that, that's, the, that's the resistance strategy. Well, you, you can get that in, in, in many different bureaucratic agencies. Uh, just do nothing. And then it all collapses. So that, that's why it makes it very difficult to have, get anything up and running. But... To that extent, there is a New Zealand, and, and uh, if you can keep the priests not totally disillusioned, though uh, everyone likes to be a bit cynical, but but to, to ensure that they are happy and, and that we're functioning as a presbyterium to ensure that uh, that parishioners are get, getting that formation. Um, I mean, I have the bias that I think everyone should have a, a good catechetical knowledge, um, so I'll always be pushing doctrine. But uh, but also too in, in terms of what what does it mean to be to actually have a hospitality and um, to be welcoming and you know working around that where, and to see you know you, you now I can use all the the, the uh, all the terms you know best practice and all that that, that sort right. of stuff I mean, you can only take it so far but but where you where you, where you have though uh, that that intentional focus. And, and I, so we're using divine renovation as well. We get the priests involved in that. I mean, it's look, they're all different ways, but, but it, it is a, a genuine concern for everyone who comes to mass that, well, th this is, this is what we're saying. You know, we, we have to, uh, we have to invite. And okay. Uh, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and because you have been, I think, refreshingly public about your frustrations about life and meetings as a bishop, um, <laughs> So th there is, if you like, two images of a plenary council. The first is yeah. what we'd like it to be, which is a, a really powerful 
gathering of the Holy Spirit under the Episcopal authority of all of the bishops of the country. And, you know, it's kind of a mini ecumenical council. It has this, you know, innate authority to itself. You know, it, it has a long tradition in the church dating back to the apostolic period, the idea of having plenary councils, things like that. And then on the other hand, you kind of think, mm, yeah, but is this just the world's most unbelievably pretentious set of committee meetings? And which is it? I'd call it a magical mystery tour. Okay. You know, the, you know the cartoon and they're in a bus? Yeah. Yeah, it's that. I don't know where okay. we're going, <laughs> but we're on this bus together. Okay. Someone's so th- driving it. But that, I mean, you say that and that, but I mean, that is kind of, I mean, at least listening to what the Pope has been saying about the concept of synodality is that, that in itself can be an important and powerful thing that, you know, I, I am, I have been fairly skeptical publicly about the synod and synodality and what, what I think could happen to it in some places. But I don't for a minute doubt what the Pope has said about there is something to intentionally being together and talking about things without necessarily knowing where you're going to go with it. That, that you know, it's, it's fun to make fun of, you know, the sort of, um, you know, sort of meme friendly words like dialogue and encounter and things like that. But, you know, they didn't start off as jokes that the idea that you do actually have to meet people if you're ever going to have any effect. I mean, the entire premise of evangelization is encountering another person and bringing them to Christ. The Eastern Church, I mean, they've been doing synods since day dot, and, and, and probably it's about looking to the East mm. and, and how they uh, envision synodality. I, I, I would, we, we asked the Greek Archbishop, uh, the Greek Orthodox Archbishop, about synodality, and he had some wonderful things to say, and I'm hoping he'll be able to address us in the second session of the Plenary Council. Uh, you know, we, we're becoming great mates with all the Greek Orthodox, by the way, I have to say. Oh, really? Oh yeah, we're socialising and you know the ecumenism of meetings as well. That's that's the well, the ecumenism of barbecues I think is really helpful. I mean, the Greek Orthodox have great food. At least, well, I, I did. Well, I've actually invited them over for a barbecue. They said they'd bring they'd, they'll bring the skewers and uh, the big on lamb. <laughs> yeah, but but it is um, it, it is the case though that when our experience from the first session, when we had the listening sessions with ourselves in the small groups, they were actually quite spiritual and productive uh, in the sense that, yeah, we weren't achieving grand lists of things, but, but it did, it did actually uh, bring us to a a kind of fraternity and, and communion when we uh, practiced listening sessions. Uh, The problems were when we abandoned those and then it became the the, sort of throw everything at the wall and see which one's proposition stick, you know, Mm. can I get my agenda across that, that side of it becomes conflict, but where, where you are in a more spiritual uh, gathering, that there's value in that just just for that that that's encouraging i've been i've been following the council in australia more or less as a sort of alternative programming to the german synodal process which you know the vatican famously said what you think you're doing is you're calling it a synod but you think you're having a plenary council and you're not having a plenary council because we haven't told you you can have one so to see these these two sort of parallel processes kicking off has been very very interesting and i've been hoping that your experience um w- will be a modeling exercise because, you know, everyone's got to have a synod now. Um, and hopefully. Well, well I would, I, my, own, my own drawing reflection upon it would be um, it's, it's not something you can rush. It's not something you can rush. It's not like you can say, okay, like bring everyone together, give us your ideas and here's the end product. Uh, and I, I think that'd be the wrong way around. It, it is more of a coming together and let's travel together. 
and and but be prepared to take a very very long time. But so it, it's this is going to be it is generally walking together, and, and that's the point of it. Uh, and these are ways in which we can uh, actually listen to each other. One criticism I would have is the representation. We have to be very careful not to ensure that it's simply those who are in paid employment for the church, uh, because that's it facilitates that you know given that you know you're going to take time out to be involved. So the challenge is how can you bring a truly representative portion of the church together, and that means people who are immigrants, uh, people who are young. <laughs> Um, uh, it's a very who, relative term in the church. People who don't tend to, you know, sort of get their thrills from reading about the latest, you know, organisational <laughs> um, um, jamboree. So, getting their input is, I think, is really important if it's truly ecclesial. That makes sense. Well, it's Christmas Eve. I actually have to do. Some kind. I have to figure out what we're having for dinner tomorrow. Do you know what you're having? Do you, okay. So here's a here's a final question for you. Christmas in Australia. Do you do a turkey or other bird, or is it completely other? Look, traditional to do. You know, a bit of roast chook or, or even a turkey if you're if you're so minded. Um, and don't forget, we now celebrate Black Friday in in Australia. Oh no, we don't have Thanksgiving because there are no pilgrim. Fathers in the Mayflower, but we do have Black Friday. There's a different Friday. kind of ship that arrived there, yeah. Uh, no, but this is just, no, we, we're just adopting so many, <laughs> so many of these customers, it's crazy. But but, but what, what we tend to do, I think, more is, is go go the route of seafood. Oh. So lots of prawns. Uh, lobster's actually quite cheap at the moment um, mm. for whatever, because of the, you know, we can't export it or something. So it's, it's uh, yeah, lots of seafood. Well, that sounds horrible. I'm going to try and have beef this year, but I, I wish you all the best for your for your seafood Christmas dinner. And I really do appreciate you taking the time this afternoon, this morning for you. It, it's been great. I really appreciate it. I wish you all the best for your for your midnight mass and uh, well done pulling rank and escaping the vigil. Merry Christmas. And happy Christmas to you. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media at JD and Ed Mutual. I have been your host, Ed Condon, Pillar editor and co-founder, and I've been joined by Bishop Richard Ambrose of the Archdiocese of Sydney, and we will see you next time. Merry Christmas. You'll come a-waltzing Matilda with me.